0: Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you. And what we need right now, Father, is for whatever you have for us today in the scriptures to be made clear, Father. I pray that you would remove any error from my, my mouth, that you would only put in the next 40 minutes or so, Father, what you desire for my brothers and sisters in Christ to hear and that you would open all of our hearts, mine included, Father, to receive this. That lyric in that song we just sang, Father, that one day all things will be made new. I ask, Father, that you would take the reality of that one day in the future and bring it into our presence here so that we can taste something of it today. We can understand the the sheer scale and scope and glory of that day in some small way, Father. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul's letter to the Romans, the greatest letter ever written in my humble opinion, and one of the reasons for, a lot of people feel that way, Uh, one of the reasons for it being so incredibly awesome is its scope. He literally covers everything in that letter. He draws on all points of scripture and gives us a a very clear view of reality, of, of things the way they really are. But another reason why Romans is a a favorite of a lot of people is that it has passages like this, saturated with grandeur. Paul, in these few verses, is talking about the restoration of all things. All things. And it it is ignited by the glorification of, of all of God's children, those who have received Jesus Christ and the gospel, his work on the cross. And Paul describes this day here as the glory that is to be revealed to us or the revealing of the sons of God. This is a real day in the future. This day will happen in the future. And it's a day that all of creation and even us are groaning for it to happen. We want it to happen. We feel the need for it to happen. A day where Christ will finally return and where he will transform our lowly and broken and battered bodies to be like his glorious body. God begins healing the entire cosmos and he starts with his children first. Paul calls it the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it is the end of all futility, all corruption, and all suffering for God's children. And what Paul is saying here is that the suffering and tragedy in our current lives, the suffering and tragedy that we experience day to day, cannot hold a candle to the glory that is to be revealed to us on that day. And, it almost seems too good to be true. In a world like ours, with the magnitude of suffering that we see on the news every day, that, we ex- that spills over into our, our lives on a daily basis, how is this passage even possible? And yet it is. It's a real day. And it is the hope that the heart of the Christian clings to, to be set free. From the suffering in this world. And there's no question that David, in the passage we've been looking at over the past month, Psalm, in Psalm 63, must feel something of that desire, that longing, that groaning, that hope. David wants to be home. And for David, home is God. It's experiencing who God is and his presence. And right now, As he writes out Psalm 63, for David, God feels like he's an entire universe away. He does not feel close. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, he begins. Psalm 63 is how David fights to get back home. It's how he fights to find God. And most scholars, like we've said in the past few weeks, believe that this point in David's life, he was on the run. We know he was in the wilderness and he was being chased by his own son, Absalom, who had just initiated a coup d'etat in Israel and was attempting to take the throne from his own father. So David leaves Jerusalem, goes out into the, to the wilderness with a handful of his men, probably more than that. But the armies of Israel are hunting him down to destroy him. And it's hard to imagine when you think about David and his life, it's hard to imagine a more tragic moment, really in anyone's life, than your own son trying to kill you. It's hard to beat that. And yet the suffering that David is experiencing in Psalm 63, and in this point in his life, is the same suffering that Paul is talking about in Romans 8. It's the same suffering, it's the same futility. It's the same bondage that Paul is expressing in Romans 8. And so this suffering, this, this pressure on him is where David feels led to pen Psalm 63. And so if you could take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 63. I want to read this passage front to back one more time. Next week, we're going to begin another series. And so this is our last look at this, and then we're going to zero in on the very tail end of this chapter. This is what David writes in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now over the past month, we've covered the first eight verses in this chapter. And today we're going to zero in, like I said, on the final three verses, verses 9 through 11, which really function as the resolution of this psalm. David spent eight verses desperately seeking God, drawing from memories of God in the past. (laughs) And then in verse 8, he finally cries out, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And David is holding on. To God, And he's doing that because God is ultimately holding on to him. God has him even in the darkest of nights. God has him even in the most barren of wildernesses. And then verse 9 begins to reveal what David anticipates is the resolution of the events that have taken him. Namely, as he clings to God, David anticipates that the enemies who have sought to destroy him will be destroyed themselves. He says, Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be food for jackals. They will be destroyed. David's confident that God will do this for him, that God will destroy David's enemies in the field of battle. And so he's clinging to God, and he sees this victory before himself, Keep in mind, these verses are written in future tense. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Much of this passage, this entire chapter, is written in future tense. But he is trusting in God to deliver him, and God does. Listen to what happens when David's warriors go out to face Absalom's warriors and the armies of Israel in 2 Samuel 18. It says this, So the army went out into the field against Israel. That's David's army. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over all the the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day, Than the sword. And one of those devoured by the forest was Absalom himself, who you may remember the story from Sunday school. He's riding underneath a tree, gets caught in the tree by his own hair, and then Joab, the commander of David's army, goes and kills him. And so at a great loss uh, to Israel, 20,000 men, 20,000 men, the forces of Absalom finally crushed by the servants of David. And so this is the resolution to David's prayer, David's song in Psalm 63. David's enemies see defeat. They're destroyed. And David is finally able to go back to Jerusalem. He's finally able to go back to the throne as the king of Israel. And this is where Psalm 63 comes to an end. This is where it ends. And then verse 11 says this in Psalm 63, but the king shall rejoice in god all who swear by him swear by the king shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped so after david's enemies come to a swift and devastating end this line tells us that the king david himself will rejoice in god but he won't he won't be alone all who swear by him, anyone who has sworn by the king, sworn allegiance to him, is fighting faithfully with him, shall exalt or worship or praise God. And they do this in response to the destruction of David's enemies, the peace that has now come into Israel. This is the very worship, it's the realization of the very worship that David has sought desperately this entire psalm. He has thirsted and hungered, and pursued God, this whole psalm, and then in this final verse, the king shall rejoice in God, we see that it actually happens. And yet, we have this strange phrase at the end, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. That's why David, according to this, that's why David after passing through the wilderness of the soul, can finally rejoice in God. The mouths of liars have been stopped. That's what the ver- word for there means. And, and on its face, we can assume pretty easily that at the very least, Absalom and his forces are in view here. Absalom was, was conducting this rebellion by lying to people, by creating a conspiracy through treachery and deceit against the king. And what he did was he eroded support for his father, gathered people. He really stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And lying is how he took the throne. So we can assume that, with little doubt, that Absalom is in view here. Absalom and his allies are the liars, primarily, immediately, I should say, that are in focus here. But the irony is that this event in 2 Samuel, when we see this play out, David's first response to Absalom's death isn't rejoicing at all. It is deep, deep sorrow. It is mourning, it is weeping for his loss. Listen to this in 2 Samuel 18.33. And the king was deeply moved. He just heard that his son had died and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. That's David. He is not rejoicing in that passage. He is racked by the sorrow of losing his son. And this doesn't look anything like joy. It does not look anything like joy. After running for his life from the very real threat of his son, trying to kill him, David's finally been restored and vindicated. And yet he does this. He responds with weeping. Now, why does he do this? Why does he cry? Why does he weep? Well, obviously the most obvious reason is he's losing his son. He loved his son. He loved his son. He didn't want his son to do this. But another reason, which we talked about in the first week, is that his son isn't alone to blame for the rebellion. David himself is responsible. If you remember from that first week, this rebellion was a response to David's sin. And we see that when the prophet Nathan approaches David just a few chapters earlier, 2 Samuel 12. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you, David, king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So after David lied to cover up his adultery and the murder of this woman's husband, he's finally found out by Nathan the prophet and his sin is revealed and God is telling him, because of your sin, there's gonna be real problems for you in the future from your own house. This future rebellion is prophesied by Nathan through God's statement over David's sin. Now, this doesn't absolve Absalom of his evil or his treachery at all, but it does tell us that Absalom's mouth isn't the only one that was lying. David had lied to cover up his sin. And so the roots of David's suffering in Psalm 63 and his pursuit of God, his hunger for God in Psalm 63, in the middle of this wilderness of the soul, are planted in the soil bed of his own deceit, his own lies. And that's why evil was raised up in his own house. And God says that the sin... David dishonoring God by doing these wicked, evil acts was actually a despising of God himself, which is a revealing statement about what sin really is. What is sin at the bottom? For God, it tells us that the core of sin isn't just disobeying a rule or not following a commandment, That's not the heart of what sin is. That's not the essence of sin. Sin is a disposition of the heart to despise the one who gave us the rule. That's what sin is at its core. And and though David is a man after God's heart, though he has a passion for God, as we've seen in Psalm 63, God calls what he did here, this action towards Uriah and this adultery with Bathsheba, he calls it despising the Lord. This is just how bad, how horrific sin really is. When David sinned, when he committed these two atrocious acts, in that moment, he wasn't being governed by his love for God. He he was being governed by something Else than his love for God. He was dominated by his affections to, to feed his flesh and to do what was most convenient. And God looks at his sin and says, why do you hate me, David? Why do you despise me? So much that you would do this horrible thing. And so in its essence, whether, whether consciously or subconsciously, however this works in our hearts, in its essence, sin, is the act of treating an infinitely worthy and glorious God as though he is not any of those things and is in fact worthless. It is despising him according to God. And the other thing the story of David and Absalom illustrates for us is the source of suffering. How does suffering come into this world? How does suffering happen And what it says here is that at the root of all suffering, at the root of the very bottom of every experience of pain and agony and suffering in this world, is sin. Sin is at the bottom of all of that. Sin is the root of every tear. And sin is the root of every fear. When sin entered the world, according to Romans 5, death and suffering came quickly behind it. And if sin, at its essence, is despising God, then we have a huge issue because that tells us that sin is the one thing, the only thing, really, that can keep us from worshiping God, from praising God, from rejoicing in God like David does at the end of Psalm 63. It's the exact opposite. To despise God is to not worship him, not rejoice in him, so listen again to this last verse from Psalm 63 with that lens on your mind. But the king shall rejoice in God. He's worshiping God. All who swear by him shall exalt. They're worshiping God. For, because the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now that four is critical. Whenever you see a four. Think hard about what's being said. There's an argument being made. There is causality that is being introduced in the phrase of some kind, of some nature. It tells us the reason here, this four, that the king can rejoice in God and that those who swear by him can exult in God is because lying mouths have somewhere along the line been silenced. Lies have come to an end. If sin in its essence is despising God, then it must be dealt with if we are able to rejoice in God. Think about this for a moment. David in Psalm 63 is is really at the lowest point a human being can go. His own son who he played with as a kid wants him dead and is pursuing him. And he's already taken away almost all that David has. And as David is clawing his way back home through the driest and darkest season of his life, this wilderness of the soul, here at the end of the psalm, only when sin is silenced can he be free to rejoice for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Such an innocuous line. You almost pass over it. So people can't lie anymore. Is that all that you're saying? David's present circumstance is clearly in view here, but we need to recognize as the people of God that there is a day coming. There is a day in our future when this line will be true about every human being in a way that that goes beyond anything David ever experienced. One day... I won't sin anymore. Anymore. There won't be a sinful word in my mouth. There won't be a sinful action in my hands. There won't be a sinful thought in my mind. They will be gone. And this day is the same day that Paul's referring to in Romans 8, the revealing of the sons of God, when we are set free from the bondage of corruption in this world and we are enabled, unlike we've ever been before, to rejoice in God. And what I would like us to do with the rest of our time together today is look very closely at this passage, a specific aspect of this passage in Romans 8, and ask a few questions. And so have these questions sort of orbiting your mind as we look at this text. How in the world does God do that verse for us? How does he silence our sin, our lies at the end? How does he bring about the end of suffering, the end of bondage to corruption, and make our path home Clear our path to rejoice in God the way that we were always intended to be rejoicing in God. How does he do that? And this isn't a mental exercise. This is not a mental exercise because Paul wrote Romans 8 for a reason. David wrote Psalm 63 for a reason. There are reasons for us to see this. As we answer these questions, the reality that is in the future, in that one day in the future, streams into the present and speaks into our current sorrows speaks into our current suffering speaks into our fear Romans 8:17 through 21 has something to say about the tears that you cried yesterday and the tears you're going to cry tomorrow and we need to see it so turn there with me this will be where we focus the rest of our time today Romans 8:17 through 21 for i consider the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now we have to pay very close attention to Paul's words here. (laughs) In verse 20, he says, creation was subjected to futility. This is the same bondage of corruption in verse 21. It's the same sufferings in verse 17. It is the same suffering and death that entered into the world after the first sin. The futility in verse 20, all of these things are the same category. They are in the same bucket. Creation was subjected to that and not willingly. It says, Not willingly. In other words, creation didn't want this to happen. It didn't decide automatically for this to happen. It was subjected to this because of him, pronoun, who subjected it. So someone unwillingly, as far as creation is concerned, subjected the created order to futility. Now this is the tricky question. Who was it? Who did this? Was it Adam? Was it Satan? Paul's response on both accounts is no. It wasn't either of them. They don't, A, they don't have that kind of power. And B, we know they didn't do this because of two words in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected to it, subjected it in hope. Creation was subjected to futility in hope. That was the ultimate purpose. And we know that that Adam did not subject anything to futility and hope. We know that Satan certainly isn't in the business of creating hope. So who did this? Whose plan? was it that in the devastating events of the fall of man, which allowed a tsunami of suffering to enter into our world, which we are still experiencing to this day, that there would be in all of that mess hope. The only one who could have done this is God. God is the one who subjected creation to futility in hope. And what this means, you have to think very carefully about this. What this means is that the suffering that we experience in this world as a result of sin, our own sin, the sin around us, is more than simply God's justice. It is more than simply God's just wrath for wrongdoing the subjection to futility that we are reeling from still was done in hope. Verse 21 says that in hope that creation, this is the hope, itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption, that creation would obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the hope. That's the goal. That's the purpose. It's the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Freedom from futility, Freedom from corruption, freedom from suffering, and ultimately freedom to rejoice in God like David did. Freedom to rejoice in God beyond what David did. When God spoke the curse over Adam's sin in Genesis 3, when, when, he, when, he, when he, surveying the trauma of their sin, spoke the curse over the created order, he had in mind this hope, this plan, this purpose that he would bring into fruition and that hope was the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. The glorious day when every broken thing we experience in this life is finally healed. The day when suffering comes to an end for the children of God. And yet Paul in this passage when he's describing the suffering, the futility, the bondage to corruption, his main focus here isn't the suffering, but it's the glory. It is the glory that is to be revealed. He says the sufferings that you're experiencing in this present age, you're experiencing right now in your lives, are absolutely nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to you on the final day. They are nothing in comparison. Paul is saying here that that day will be so profoundly glorious and wonderful that it will make up for every single tear you've ever shed. Everyone. All of the suffering you've experienced in fear, in sorrow, in loss, in depression, all of those things, in physical pain, all of that will be taken up into the arms of God and healed on that day in such a way that it will be a cause for you to rejoice in God and sing for joy in such a way that it makes it seem as nothing next to the glory that you're experiencing. What that tells us is that none of the suffering, none of the pain in our lives— Is wasted because it will yield to us glory, which is why in 2 Corinthians 4 17, when Paul is is thinking about the same futility, the same corruption, the same bondage that he is talking about in Romans 8, he shows us the relationship between suffering and glory in the life of the Christian. And I want you to listen to this passage really, really closely. It's short. Listen to what he says here because it will tell you. How he wants the Christian to think about suffering in this life and about glory in the next. Listen to what he says here, 2nd Corinthians 4.17. This light momentary affliction, and he is talking about every ounce of futility and suffering that you've ever experienced, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see those words, beyond all comparison. They are really there. They are really there in the text. He wants us to see those words. Those words are real. It is actually beyond all comparison. The pain and the tears that you experience in this life have an expiration date. Your suffering has an expiration date. God will see that pain out the door on the last day and you will listen to me you got to believe this never cry again you will never cry again but before that moment and this is critical for us to understand as Christians who are in the middle of suffering before that moment Our pain and our suffering in this life is not meaningless. God is doing something in this affliction. He is doing something in us through the pain. The sufferings in our lives that we experience day to day, the trauma that hits our lives like a tidal wave sometimes when we lose someone we love, all of that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that has no comparison, no analog in this world. There is nothing like it. It is beyond human comprehension. And the reason Paul is telling us this in 2 Corinthians four seventeen, and what he's saying in Romans 8, and really even the reason that David is writing Psalm 63, ultimately, is that he is reaching out into that future joy, the future glory, and something about reaching out into that glory Brings it into the present in his heart, in his in his own experience. And that future joy, when it breaks into the presence and thinking about it, recognizing it, seeing it, recognizing it's not for nothing, recognizing there's meaning behind this suffering, it has infinite, eternal value. One day we will be free of suffering. And when that happens, when that happens in our soul, when we see it for what it is, when we recognize that that one day is coming for us, streams of joy begin to flow into our hearts from the future glory we know that God is preparing for us, which is beyond comparison. There is a reason for our pain. It is not for nothing. It isn't pointless. It isn't meaningless. And though joy, that joy that we experience when we contemplate and embrace the glory that is to be ours, doesn't take away the pain, always, doesn't take away the suffering. That joy somehow miraculously in the middle of suffering causes us to delight in God, causes us to enjoy God in the middle of the crucible of pain in this life. But you already know this because we said that suffering... Isn't the, only, isn't the main impediment against worship. In fact, suffering can't be. Sin is the main impediment for worship. The main reason we don't worship isn't because we're experiencing a circumstance. It is because of our disposition in the middle of the circumstance. In order for joy in God to happen to anyone, sin must be dealt with. Sin must be handled. We saw earlier that David's sin, When God looked down upon it and said, I'm gonna define this sin. This is what sin is, despising me. That's what sin is. That's what your sin is, David. That's what our sin is, despising God. It is the diametric opposite of rejoicing in God. So there is no joy in God where sin remains. There is no joy in God. Think about David here, an adulterer and a murderer. That's what he is. How is it at the end of Psalm 63 that he is able to rejoice in God as an adulterer and a murderer? What gives him the right to experience that joy? Well, we find out in 2 Samuel 12, 13. Listen to what happens when David's sin is discovered. This is his response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan is telling David, God's wrath, which should break out against you and kill you like that, isn't going to do that. It's not going to destroy you. Though you should die because you're a murderer, David, God says, no. That's not going to happen. You shall not die. Now, why is that the case? How can Nathan say this outrageous thing on behalf of God to David. David's killed a man after sleeping with his wife. You can't just put that away. What about Uriah's parents? You can't put that away. He should have to pay for this with his life. But God looks down on David and says, no, no. You shall not die. Now, how in the world is that possible? Well, it is only possible. It is only possible because in God putting away David's sin, he is putting it on another. Look at Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's where David's sin went. That's where David's sin went, on Christ Jesus. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin, every lie, every evil and wicked thought and desire, that was laid on Christ. That's what the cross is. It is a the cross is a world's worth of despising God, an infinitely worthy God put on one man. That's what the cross. And that is how God secures this this amazing day in the future, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's how God takes sinners whose disposition is to despise God, ignore him, treat him like he isn't God and transforms them into children who delight in God and rejoice in God. And the communion we're gonna take here in a few minutes is a memorial of that cross. It is is a, a picture of what God paid to purchase the hope in Romans 8. That hope is not free. I hope he didn't just pull it out of the ether. It had to be bought with blood. And it costs the infinitely worthy blood of Jesus Christ, his son. And though this sacrifice in, in all of our sin has been dealt with, actually, because it's been dealt with, because it's been dealt with on this cross, there is now nothing between us and joy in God. There is nothing. There is nothing between us. And that includes, that nothing includes the suffering David was experiencing when he was running from his son. And that nothing includes every ounce of suffering we all experience in this life. It cannot keep us from enjoying God. Which brings me to my final point. We've been focusing on this one line in Psalm 63, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And yet we have not addressed the one mouth of the one liar who we have all suffered at the hands of. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the enemy. So that verse in Psalm 63, 11, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. There's one liar at the bottom of all the liars. And on the last day, his mouth will be shut forever. And I think this is important for us to see that that final mouth being shut, that lying mouth being shut, it's important for us to see because when suffering comes into our lives right now, when it seeps into our lives because someone we know gets cancer and we're weeping or someone we know gets hit by a car or loses their job or has any kind of extraordinary sequence of events come into their life, press into their soul and cause them pain. When that happens, the first mouth to talk to us is his. And he desires to steal our joy in God. He doesn't want you to rejoice in God. He doesn't want you to love God. He doesn't want you to delight in God. But what you need to hear is he actually doesn't have that kind of power and he doesn't have that kind of authority. The cross has removed every barrier between you and joy in God. And one of the reasons Romans 8 exists is for us to believe it. For us to see it, God say it, and for us to believe it. The only thing that could separate us from joy in God is sin. And that's been paid in full on the cross. And so there is nothing, there is nothing in the entire universe that can separate you from that joy. From the joy of experiencing God's love in Christ Jesus. Not depression, not anxiety, not sorrow, none of those things can stop you from experiencing the joy in God. And Romans 8, in all of its glory and all of its splendor, makes this abundantly clear in its final verses. And I want you to hear this as though it is being spoken to you individually and into your experience and into your pain. And I want you to load into these words all of the suffering, all of the agony, all of the fear you've experienced and let Paul tell you on behalf of Christ reality and not a fiction created by a lying mouth from the enemy. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a legitimate question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. One day, the enemy that has been lying to you will be silenced forever. His mouth will be stopped. But until that day, we cling to the hope in Romans 8, the glory that is to be ours, that is incomparable to anything we've experienced in this life, and we fight for joy in the middle of the suffering. We fight for joy. That that suffering that we have, that suffering that we experience, all of it, even in its highest degree of intensity, even at the lowest point of its sorrow, when it is all said and done, you will look back on that span of 70, 80 years of tears and joys, but lots of tears, and you will say, That was a light momentary affliction compared to the joy I'm experiencing in the presence of the living God. That's gonna happen. That's going to happen for you. Believe it and take that truth and press it into your suffering in the moment that you're experiencing it. Don't believe lies that depression or anything, fear can, can cause you not to delight in God. Fight to have joy in God in the middle of the suffering and use all of the verses from Romans 8 to do it. Let's pray. Father, it, it, is, it is impossible for anything that I do or say, or even we do or say, to cause what I've been asking for to happen we can't do it what we need is your sovereign and gracious and loving hand to come down and grant it to us father such that when we are we are weeping over something we can't even comprehend or understand that's happened to us in our lives or maybe just an emotional disposition that we cannot remove ourselves from, Father, that you would speak into that miraculously. I'm asking you, Father God, that you'd heal miraculously, break into it a desire and a passion to do what David did in Psalm 63, to say, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I want you, God and that you would grant us that plea, that prayer, and that you would show up, Father God. I know that in this room, there's all sorts of different suffering. There's all sorts of different problems, physical pain, physical maladies, financial worries, emotional worries, Father. All of that suffering, all of that futility was not there for us to despair. It is there for us to hope. It is there for us to hope in what was purchased on the cross and bring that glory into the present by saying, I choose to rejoice in God. I choose to trust him and I choose to rejoice in God in the moment. I pray that you would do that, Father. We need you to do that in our lives. So as we worship and take communion, Father, commend that to our souls now and throughout the rest of this week and in the coming months, Father, may your hand move mightily to heal hearts that need your touch desperately.